Welcome to the ITSB Magazine Podcast Network. You're listening to a new episode of the Founder Pack Podcast, where your host, Brendan Rod, brings startup stories from experienced founders and other functional experts to help current and future founders get inspired and grow their knowledge with quick tactical insights. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Hey, Tim. Welcome to the Founder Pack Podcast. How are you? I'm doing good, Brennan. How are you? Awesome. How is your week going so far? Uh, great. Yeah. Just got out of a meeting with a technology partner and uh, really excited about where that's headed. So it's, it's been a good day so far. Awesome. And what's kind of trending in your world right now? Anything top of mind or, I don't know, just interesting that you would like to share? Yeah. I mean, I, I've been really recently obsessed with how we can maximize our use of first-party data. So, you know, we work exclusively with nonprofit organizations and we built a warehouse to basically pull together and aggregate data from multiple independent data silos um, so that we can give them a full you know, view of what's happening with their constituents and their um, you know, various different ways of engaging those folks, whether that's online or through transaction CRM data or through, you know, email communications. Um, and we're trying to figure out now how do we actually like use that data to deploy audiences that we can target for the purposes of new donor acquisition, for example, uh, or retention strategy. So that's the thing that I've been really focused on for the last uh, several months. Would you mind just kind of sharing a little bit about you, your background and your company before we jump in? Sure, absolutely. So I grew up in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, graduated from college right after 9-11, which was a horrible, horrible time to enter into the job force, especially for somebody that wanted to work in the field of advertising and marketing. Uh, but fortunately, I worked at a country club all during high school and college. So I had 432 aunts and uncles that were captains of industry. So when I needed a job, I called Uncle Joe. Uh, he was the president of the country club. He was the president of the second largest ad agency in Pittsburgh. I met with him, did a little dog and pony show. He's like, ah, I'd love to hire you, kid. But, you know, we just laid off 30 people yesterday. You know, 9-11 has hit our industry hard, our agency harder. Can't help you. So I ended up kind of like, you know, wandering through the wilderness for about six months. I met a serial entrepreneur and he said, well, maybe you can do some freelance projects for some of these businesses I operate. And then he said, you know, why don't you start a business? And I said, I don't know how to do that. He's like, well, I do. We've got an incubator on the second floor of our office building. I'll give you a desk. I'll introduce you to people. I'll be your partner and the rest is up to you, kid. So uh, I did that for about five years. That was my first experience in business was like building this company from scratch. I knew nothing, uh, but learned a lot. How do you go get clients? How do you keep them happy? How do you service them? How do you meet payroll? Like all the things that goes into running a, you know, a small business. And then about five years in, I just became a little bit restless. I wanted to do something that actually made more of a, a significant impact on our world. And so end up, uh, selling my business and going to work for a nonprofit organization. I was there for a short time because the day I got there, uh, the founder of the organization had a heart attack and he was hospitalized for a little bit and then he passed away. And so we went from a $36 million organization to 18 in 12 months. And it was a pretty tough time. But it was during that time that I realized that there's basically these marketing agencies that work exclusively with nonprofits. And there was one in Dallas that uh, the nonprofit I worked with happened to um, use as their agency. And the founder of that organization said, hey, why don't you come to Dallas? We've been doing uh, direct mail for 35 years uh, with the nonprofit clients we serve. 
We'd love to go into this digital world. We don't know how to do it. Why don't you come help us start a digital fundraising division? So that's how I got to Dallas in 2008. Uh, I was at that agency for about two and a half years. We got acquired by another agency. And then about 18 months later, I left and started Next After. And what Next After is today is really three things. We are a fundraising research lab. We're consultancy and we're a training institute. Um, and if you like, I can share more about how those three pillars fit together to form our value proposition. Cool. I appreciate the, the backstory. And then I have one more question and I promise we'll get into the show. Can you share one fun fact about yourself? I will give you three. Um, I worked uh, for a while as assistant golf professional. So I was a professional golfer for a while and gave lessons to people. I worked at a country club and did that for a while. Uh, I advised the former president of the United States. Um, so I was uh, part of a consulting group that worked with them on their digital strategy when they uh, were building the presidential library here in Dallas. And um, let's see, third fact, uh, in fifth and sixth grade, I was part of a traveling musical act that traveled all around. Um, and although I didn't have the best voice, I had you know charisma, right? So <laughs> there's three. <laughs> Those are awesome. Which president was that that you were helping with? George W. Bush. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much. Eh? Those were some awesome fun facts. It's like one of my favorite parts of the show. So I, I think to open up the show, I would love to explore some current insights and trends you're seeing at the moment because you have this really awesome advantage of like being on so many advisory boards. Yeah. You know, I, I, I do have the privilege of serving on a, a variety of different boards and advisory boards. Um, and I'll tell you that like the difference between some of the more, you know, larger enterprise organizations that I serve on versus like some of the more startup organizations is that the nature of the, uh, of the, um, the issues are different with the larger organizations they're usually all relational issues. Like we're, you know, talking about like some issues with a competitor in the marketplace and like how that's creating sort of dynamics that are, uh, leading to both opportunities and challenges for the organization. Whereas if I'm, I'm talking with like more startups, it's more tactical kind of stuff. Like, how do we go get this thing done? How do we go spin up a demand generation engine? How do we go and, you know, enable our uh, sales force to be able to go communicate our value proposition in a way that's consistent and regular and, and compelling? So I would say that, you know, just depending on the size of the organization, you know, the, the nature of the issues changes. What are some conversations and common denominators that are occurring within this startup category of the, the boards that you advise on? Yeah, I mean, I think that most organizations start with a hypothesis, right? So it's like, you know, we believe that the market needs X and we are going to provide X to the market in this way that differentiates us from maybe some of the other you know, organizations or, or companies that exist that do that thing. But what ends up happening oftentimes is is the pivot, right? We're all, we're all familiar with this, this concept of the pivot. So you start with this ingoing hypothesis that this is what the market wants, this is how they want it delivered. And as you begin to go through the process of, you know, onboarding customers and understanding how you deliver value to them, then that often leads you to kind of pivot into a slightly different direction. So I'll give you an example just with my company. So when I started my company, uh, we do fundraising optimization, right? Which means we, you know, work with organizations and help them to optimize um, their various different campaigns for raising money. And the first iteration of my company, I thought that our company would be a consultancy that worked with other agencies, right? So my early clients were agencies, technology companies, 
And I, I thought that my business was going to build value for them by creating this fundraising optimization division. Well, what I come to, came to discover is that um, that didn't work, right? So, um, you know, what, what I was talking about was fresh and interesting. And oftentimes that was being positioned as the new shiny thing that they would dangle before the client. Once the client signed the, you know, the dotted line, then I'd be pushed to the side and I wasn't involved in any of the execution, which meant that, you know, it just didn't work, right? So like they weren't actually building the thing I thought they wanted. So then we had to pivot and say, okay, well, if we can't do that by working through these agencies and technology companies that have hundreds or thousands of customers, we need to start working with nonprofits directly one at a time. And so that was the pivot that we made. And we started you know, working directly with these organizations where we could work with them on the strategy side of fundraising optimization, but then also the act execution of that strategy. And I think we all know that like, you know, good strategy without great execution is not worth the, the paper that's written on. So that was one example just from my personal you know, journey that, that I learned and took away. And that kind of brings me to my next question. From your business where you talk about gaining insights and optimizing how to, to raise money for nonprofits and teaching founders those insights, are there takeaways that you could apply to the for-profit world? Yeah, well, uh, and, and just, just, just as a point of clarity. So when I say like, you know, helping nonprofits like, you know, raise funds, I mean, that's basically like customer acquisition. Like how do they get a customer? A customer is a donor in, in my world. So the biggest thing we've learned about like trying to develop a, a very sound customer theory is that you need to create a laboratory. And fortunately for all of us, the world's greatest behavioral laboratory that's ever existed has been created. It's called the internet, right? And we can, instead of, you know, just uh, planting a flag and saying, we know the answer to this question, we can actually use the web as a laboratory to test different ideas and allow the behavior of our customers to inform what really truly works and what truly doesn't. So that's something that, you know, we've, we've done over and over again. I think we've documented over... 3,700 digital fundraising experiments trying to understand what works and what doesn't work. So let me give you a couple examples, right? So if I'm um, doing like email fundraising, so I'm trying to go and um, acquire a donor by sending emails. Most nonprofit fundraising emails are very highly designed. They got HTML and graphics and images and buttons, all these kind of like things. And Everybody does that, by the way. So everybody in our space, that's how that's that's the nature of how they send email communications. Um, the problem is, is when a potential donor sees that in their inbox, so a customer, right? Uh, all they see is somebody trying to market to them. And what we know is that people don't want to be marketed to, people want to be communicated with. You know, donors don't give to email machines, they give to people. Just like people don't buy from websites, they buy from people. And so one of the simple things that we've learned, and we've tested this dozens of times in different countries and different languages with many organizations, is that when you strip away the marketing veneer for, of your email, get rid of the images, get rid of the graphics, get rid of the buttons, and you know even rewrite the copy so it sounds like it's coming from one human to another human, 200, 300, 400, 500% increase in conversion rate by taking that approach. So it's simple things like that of just humanizing your communication, your marketing to make it more believable and more relatable to your ideal customer. So that's an interesting point. I've seen, and I also believe in that personal outreach, like do your homework, make it personal. I understand email can help with scale, but to your point, it 
does sort of come across as generic and I'm not sure perhaps it does work in in certain verticals maybe with nonprofit but would you recommend that startup founders do this to get their name out and to spray and pray for raising their seed round or pre-seed rounds well i mean you're you're absolutely right what you're talking about when you're saying like we're going to go raise money to fund a round of our startup organization like that is a very complicated sale that is not going to happen in the course of sending an email to somebody. But what an email can do is get you a meeting, right? So like, you know, and then, then the meeting gives you the opportunity to walk through the value proposition so that the investor understands, you know, really what's in it for them. So, so you know, I think, we're, I think we're talking about two kind of like different kind of things. I'm talking about more like a retail level transaction. You're talking about a complicated sale. But that doesn't mean that we can't use digital communications as a means to be able to set up some of those conversations in a more face-to-face manner, which would be more appropriate for something like that. So it's, it's ways of using technology and the various different ways of marketing to people for the purpose of you know getting to that next step. So right? you could leverage email as part of like an omni-channel approach to getting to that meeting and- Yeah, and uh, you know, an- another strategy that translates from the nonprofit space to the for-profit space, if I go and ask somebody for money, they usually give me advice, right? But if I go and ask people for advice, they'll oftentimes give me money, right? So one strategy you can take is, you know, going to your network and saying, hey, I would really like to get your your eyes on something like this. I want you to kind of like, you know, just review my pitch and I, I want to kind of give it to you as if you're a potential investor. And I want you to kind of give me feedback and critique it. What that's doing is it's kind of like, it's giving these people an opportunity to lend their expertise, right? And weigh in. And we know that people that like have, you know, that invest in things often like to be help you know be in the position of actually helping to shape that thing as well right so you can kind of use that as a strategy to get audience in front of people and that gives you the opportunity to develop reps with your pitch right so you know you can't expect to like have your pitch be absolutely perfect the first time you go take it to market right you need to go and get feedback from other people that can help you to optimize that pitch so that when you are in the right audience with the right person at the right time, then you're ready with the most compelling message. Perhaps we can continue on this thread for a few more minutes. So to the pitch and your sales deck, are there any recommendations, insights that you've seen to be successful either on the sales deck side and also on the pitch? I mean, they're somewhat interconnected, but maybe you like to separate them out. Yeah. So one thing that I see that's that's very common is that um, many uh, founders of startups, in particular, don't necessarily fully understand their value proposition. Now they can go and you know wax eloquently about like vision and mission and you know maybe values and here's the things that we do. Here's the things we deliver to the marketplace. That is not a value proposition. The value proposition is the answer to a very fundamental question that every customer has to hear the answer to, but they're never going to ask it. And the question is this, if I am your ideal customer, why should I buy from you rather than one of your competitors, right? That is a question we have to be absolutely prepared to answer uh, you know, every single day of the week. And what we've learned about value proposition through experimenting and testing is that a value proposition has four key dimensions, appeal, exclusivity, credibility, and clarity. So let me break those down. Appeal, what that refers to, it's got to be something that people like, that they want, right? It's got to be like some sort of you know, value that they understand that's in it for them as the customer. 
exclusivity means it has to be something that's very unique or delivered in a unique way that nobody else is doing. If I have something that's very, very appealing and there's lots of other uh, available options for that exact same thing, then the number of competing options dilutes the potency of the appeal, right? Does that make sense? So if I, you know, if I say, you know, uh, I bring clean water, right, to, you know, um, to people. Well, it's like, okay, cool. That's something everybody needs. Water, you can't survive without water, but I can get that pretty much anywhere, right? So it's like, it's very unexclusive. So we're looking for the nexus between something that's very highly appealing and something that's very highly exclusive. The second two uh, dimensions are credibility and clarity, right? Credibility means, do I believe in it? Do I believe in you? Do I believe that you're the right person to be able to go deliver that? How do I know that? Like, what are the evidentials? What are the facts, the figures, the data that proves that your way is better than everybody else's way? And then finally, and this is the hardest one, clarity, right? Because we are founders and we live inside of our organization, we also live inside of our heads. Oftentimes, it makes sense more in our minds than it does in the outside world. So like just being able to communicate clearly the reasons why somebody should choose you rather than someone else is, is absolutely essential. Uh, so that's something that, you know, we typically do is like ask people, look, let's go do a value proposition workshop an exercise. Let's get as many claims of value on the board as we can. Like what, what are all the different reasons why somebody should buy from us rather than our competitors? Let's go and then score each of those claims of value based on our ideal customer profile, right? Why would they think that this is appealing on a scale of one to five? Five is very appealing. One is not very appealing. Let's also score the exclusivity on a scale of one to five. Uh, five means I can't find this anywhere else. One means I can find this pretty much anywhere else, right? And that'll give you a sense of what are the, which of those claims are the strongest. And then you have to figure out how do I message those in a way that's really clear so everybody can understand how do I bolster those claims with credibility indicators? Like what's, what are the facts, the data, the figures that back up and support those claims? And if you go through that exercise, then you'll be able to craft a pretty compelling value proposition argument so that when you have these conversations, you can communicate it effectively. I really like that framework. So just to clarify, that's to the customer, right? It, it's to the customer, but ultimately, you know, if you're talking to an investor, they have to understand that the customer, that there's a market for this, right? And you have to be able to prove that to them in that meeting. And sometimes those meetings are very short. <laughs> yeah. Okay. No, I just wanted to make sure I understood the, the context in which you were framing that. So if we will like put that through the investor lens, if you haven't got many customers, how would you pitch that raising your seed round? How would you change your pitch versus if it was your A round where you already have customers, revenue, et cetera. Well, even if you don't have customers, you have to be able to um, articulate that there's a market for your product, that there is a sizable audience of people that want what it is that you're bringing to market and whatever data you can bring to the table to make that case is going to make it, you know, uh, a stronger value proposition. Uh, so, you know, it, it doesn't have to be you know, based on existing customers, but it's based on who's my ideal customer. Is there a market for this? How big is that market? And how is it that we have a differentiation where we're actually better than everybody else at this thing? And to touch on the recession for a few seconds here, do, do you see any changes needed to be made by founders now that money is harder to find? Or do you think it's just a waiting game? Because some people say like investors... They can only hold on to that money for so long before they have to go and spend it. 
Yeah. I mean, my experience is that, like, you know, fortune favors the brave, right? So it's like, you know, oftentimes people will, will get nervous about going and putting themselves out there in the midst of a recession because they have this intuition that, oh, maybe this is not the right time. But a lot of people take that reaction and they pull back out of that space, which means that there's actually there's there's less opportunities in the market for these investors, right? So you can seize that that kind of void or gap in the market by um, you know going the opposite direction, right? And and really trying to seek out as many conversations as you possibly can, because you're right, there are people that are saying, "Look, I'm pulling my money out of the market. Where can I put it to to work better than what I can you know do through you know the, the existing market that's at play." Yeah, that's interesting. I never really thought that it would happen on both sides that founders would maybe hold back from pitching. And therefore, that's actually an opportunity to go and pitch because there are less people pitching. And then another follow up to your value prop framework. Are you a strong believer in different versus better within your value proposition framework? Like, how do you go and incorporate that into your go to market. Yeah, I mean, I think the most effective value propositions have an only factor, right? We are the only company that does XYZ, right? Or we're the only company that does XYZ this way. And and by doing it this way, we think it's better. So I, I think that they're kind of related, but I do think finding that differentiator, that uniqueness, that that thing that really differentiates you in the marketplace is probably one of the most important things for an effective value proposition. Gotcha. Yeah, I'm, I quite like the theory of force a choice. So therefore, you're the only option if you have to force a choice versus try to win by checklists or whatever. Okay, so I, I think we're up to the rapid fire section of the show. So I'm going to ask you about five questions. And if we decide to dive deeper into one of them, that's fine. So my first question is, What's the one thing that founders or startups keep getting wrong and why? Well, <laughs> I'd say that it's the difference between revenue and cash flow, right? So like, uh, this is a lesson I learned when I started my first business, the difference between like what are on my books in terms of revenues and then what I have in terms of actually cash that's moving through my business. And that can put you in a very difficult situation where you have to take on more debt than is necessary or you know, make you have to go and you know seek out additional funding when you're not ready to do so, and it actually can put you in a position of, of weakening the valuation of your company. So that's that's one really important thing. And yeah, I forgot to mention you have this advantage of sitting on multiple boards. So hopefully we can get some interesting insights from your distributed self. So what are some common denominators for successful startups? Well, I think first and foremost is, uh, you know, having a very compelling value proposition, right? So we kind of touched on that a little bit. Um, having uh, a really strong, like, you know, leadership team in place. So there's two ways you can go build a company, right? You can go build a company by like, you're the smartest person in the room and you're going to go build out like a support network of people that can go and like leverage you to be able to go and do what you're kind of best at or you can go find a um, you know people that are smarter than you and better than you at everything and empower them to go take greater leadership role within the organization. So that's the approach I've taken. And you know, it's it's painful because you have to kind of like, you know, basically start letting go of different aspects of your of your business. And that can be scary. And honestly, like probably 
uh, people will do it differently. You know, the people you bring on board will probably do it differently than you do it. And that may feel awkward, but if you trust in the process and you, you know, you, you recruit well and you have good, good people, um, my experience is it's, it's probably one of the keys to significant growth. Um, I'd say, you know, one more thing that is really important is, um, figuring out how you're going to architect the culture of your organization. And culture is something that's kind of like a buzzword, so it doesn't you know, mean as much as it used to, but it's basically like um, almost the value proposition for why somebody should want to work here rather than somewhere else, right? That's a question that you have to kind of answer. And my experience is, is like, it, it's not a flag that you can plant in the ground and say, here's our culture, right? So like, here's our values, you know, whatever, world-class and integrity and all these words that are gobbledygook that mean nothing. I've seen that our culture has kind of emerged as we figured out how we deliver value to the marketplace. And then it's up to the founder and the leadership team to codify that and then to enforce it, right? And say, look, here is how we do what we do. This is what we're, you know, this is our mission. This is what we're trying to do. This is where we're going. Like, this is our vision. This is what we want the world to look like if we're successful. And then these are the steps. This is the box for like how people work inside of our organization in order for us to get there. So th those are probably three things I think are critically important. I, I love that. And yeah, quick follow up on two of those points. I really love the quote. I think it's Jeff Bezos says, if you're the smartest person in the room, go find another room. So <laughs> just thought I'd throw that in there. And then to your last point on culture, there are sometimes exceptions, but I think at the end of the day, people really just care about having a paycheck, personal growth, being looked after, enjoying coming to work. And th that's about it. I'm not sure many people care about the vision and the company goals. But see, yeah, I have to, I have to challenge that a little bit because uh, I mean, a lot of research that I've read, and, and this is why we, we spend a lot, we invest a lot in building the culture of our organization is because if all they really care about is the paycheck, the minute they can get a bigger paycheck, they're out. What, what you're doing right there is you're articulating values that would attract people to that kind of culture of an organization. You're saying learning and growth. If that's something that you are passionate about, you're going to find that here, right? Not only are you going to be in a position where, you know, obviously compensation is important. And so, you know, compensation is compensation, but we're also going to give you opportunities to expand your knowledge base, to expand your skill set so that you can grow through the ranks of our company. And even if you outgrow this company, you're going to be a position where you can deliver even more value outside after you, you leave this company. That's a value, right? That's a value of saying we're putting our, our, our employees ahead of our customers, right? That's a value. So when I, when I talk about values, again, it's not like these kind of like just cliche words that don't really mean anything to anybody. It's about like, what is it that this company, like, I'll give you an example. So like, uh, one of our corporate values is to err on the side of generosity. So what does that mean? Right? So that means we're trying to practice generosity every way we possibly can. Here's some very practical examples of how we do that. We do, um, compensation benchmark surveys every year and make sure that we are paying, uh, above the benchmark, uh, for the positions that we have within our company. Uh, we pay 100% of our employees health healthcare insurance for them and their families. We also fully fund their HSA uh, health savings account. We also take 27% of our employee of our company profits. It goes into an employee profit share pool and it's redistributed to the employees in the company. And it's not capped. So like the more profitable we are, the more money everybody makes. Everyone in my company last year got a 29% bonus, right? That's 
pretty significant, <laughs> right? So it's like think, and we provide you know lunch every day to every single one of our employees, um, you know, as as a way of being generous, but also about as a way of creating community, because everybody comes together. You know, we have a staff of forty four people. We meet in a lunchroom, and and we all get together and we eat, and you get to have community, and people feel like they're they're cared for because you know people need to eat, right? So it's like things like that that you can do to demonstrate your values and that your employees are incredibly important to the success of your organization. No, I, I really love that. Yeah. HubSpot, if you, if you haven't seen it, um, HubSpot has created a culture deck and I would, I would recommend every single one of your, your uh, listeners to go find that on the internet and download. Just look for the HubSpot culture deck. You'll find it, HubSpot culture code, something like that. And one of the things that they say in there, they say that culture is to recruiting as marketing is to, to sales, right? So it's about like, you know, if you create a really attractive culture, you are going to attract all of the talent you could possibly ever need. So that's what you need to do. And then you have to socialize it, right? So people know what's happening. And that's, you know, how we use LinkedIn. You know, we encourage our people to go post things and, and you know, we don't have any restrictions or we're not moderating that. We just want them to go and like share what it's like to work here. So people have a window into what the culture looks like. So they said, man, that's the kind of place I want to work. Oh, that's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. And uh, one last thing, I know we're breaking the rules on the rapid fire, but <laughs> I'm enjoying this segment here. So you touched on community and I saw like a really interesting post that I never actually gave much thought to up until I saw it. And he wrote, I can't remember his name, but he's like, companies shouldn't try to position themselves as families, but rather communities because families don't lay family off and furlough <laughs> families. That's right. And just to put an endpoint on that, uh, the average person is going to spend 80,000 hours of their life at work, right? And if that's a it's a crappy place to come, then they're going to have a pretty crappy life. And I don't know about you. I don't want to work at a, a place where it's uh, <laughs> it's not a fun place to be. A hundred percent. And then how do you get inspiration to make big business impact decisions? Um, well, I first of all, I surround myself with uh, a lot of advisors, right? So um, I'm involved in a number of different uh, you know, peer advisory uh, groups that meet on a regular basis. Uh, and usually all those groups have a, an element of those meetings, which is called advice and counsel, where you put an issue on the board. Here's a big business decision. Let me kind of frame it, the issue for you. And I've got, you know, 12 of my peers sitting around in the circle and they're firing questions at me. They're, they're challenging my thinking so that if I do make the decision or decide not to do it, then I'm going into it by looking at the issue from every different angle. So that's, that's probably one of the, the best ways that I, I kind of, you know, try to vet some of the decision I'm making. When it comes to inspiration, um, I think it's uh, kind of diversifying, you know, my, my knowledge base, right? So, you know, we work in the nonprofit space, but most of my inspiration comes from the for-profit market, from the for-profit space, right? So kind of going to different areas, different industries, you know, different verticals and learning about something. I mean, like TED Talks are a great place to do that, right? So like you go watch a TED Talk about like, you know, the mapping of the human genome. And you're just like, oh my gosh, we could do that same, take that same approach of how they went about that project, but apply it to, you know, what it, whatever it is that we're trying to solve as a company. So I think just kind of diversifying your knowledge and, and just seeing um, ways of translating something from one space to another space. And then this question I got from a founder once, and I thought it was a really cool question. How do you determine whether or not you've had a good week or not? Ooh, a good week. That's a really great question. I guess I, I want to know um, 
are the different areas of my life working, right? So like I, I'm I'm not just a, the CEO of a company. I'm also a husband. I'm also a father, right? I'm also a son, right? Um, you know, I'm also involved in, in various different kind of like community groups. And I just want to like, no, is, is there, is there parts of my life where maybe I'm successful at work, but my, my, my home life is a mess. Right. And so, you know, I guess what I'm looking for is like kind of balance in those different areas. Like if, you know, if I'm, if I'm being pulled too much in one direction, um, then that's probably not a good week. Right. That probably means I'm out of balance. So I'm trying to look for, you know, what does my balance wheel look like as a, as a, as a person. Right. And if I will follow up on this question with, let's say, performance in the workplace as a founder. Uh, so let me give you a bit more context to his question. He was saying the reason he asked this question was because as a founder, you're doing a lot of things, maybe at 10% or 20% capability. And, you know, that kind of means you're in, a, in the U.S., you called it half-assed, I think, right? So yeah. he was wanting to hear from other founders. With that as the context, how do you know if you've had a good week or not? Wow, that's great. It, you know, so it's it's been ten years since I was in the early stages of of a business where I was doing lots of different things, um, and I can totally empathize uh, with uh, you know what your listeners talking about. Um, I guess it's like, you know, what, what are the big dials, the big, the big things I need to move and like kind of prioritizing some of those things. So at the end of the day, like, you know, everyone has like their default superpower. So like, I, I, I'm really good at sales and business development, right? So like, did I close a deal? Did I make revenue? You know, is, 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 am I able to kind of do the thing that I think I'm the best in my company at? Did I do that effectively? If there's areas of like, okay, you know, if I'm in the early stages and I'm having to do some accounting stuff and I'm having to do some client service stuff and I'm having to do some like technical execution stuff, did I at least kind of, you know, keep those plates spinning <laughs> uh, while I, you know, kind of like are trying to find ways to uh, delegate and elevate that to people that could probably do those things better than me. So um, I guess it's kind of try, trying to figure out what is the one thing that um, I want to measure my personal performance by and, and just kind of using that as your um, leading indicator. And then last question, what are some of your favorite reading materials right now? Ooh, um, I've been reading a lot of like, um, just like different like technology publications because I'm really fascinated about what's going to happen once the third party cookie disappears next year. And that's going to be a huge challenge for the ad tech market. It's going to be a challenge for publishers. It could be a challenge for advertisers. Uh, so I've been reading a lot of uh, you know different publications that are being uh, you know put online just that's uh, speaking to that and there's different ways that people are going about solving the problem. I'm trying to figure out where is the where's the place where we're gonna land in terms of how we deal with that as a company with our customers uh, and with our business. So that's kind of where my head's at right now. I, I have a tendency to like obsess over certain things and I just like <laughs> become like a one issue person for a while until I can get clarity on it. Yeah, that, that could be a whole nother episode. And thank you so much for, for doing this with me. If people want to connect with you, reach out, where's the best place for folks to get in touch? 
Well, if you can figure out how to spell Kachuriak, you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, but probably the easiest place is if you go to nextafter.com, N-E-X-T-A-F-T-E-R.com. You can find uh, pretty much all of our research and everything uh, about me and how to reach me. Awesome. Thank you so much, Tim. And uh, maybe we'll even see you in the Founder Pack community one day. We would be honored to have you there. <laughs> and for awesome. those listening, it's a pretty easy URL. It's the founderpack.com. So... That's it for today. Thank you again for tuning in to the Founder Pack podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Founder Pack podcast with Brendan Rod, part of the ITSB Magazine Podcast Network. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share the channel and ITSBmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.